I want you to think about a question this morning. Does it matter if this is true? It seems like such a simple question. Does it matter if what we read in Matthew 27 and 28 actually happened in history? You know, they did a survey, the uh, Pew Research Forum did a survey. This is a long time ago now, maybe 15 years. Um, and they asked Christians, if the body of Jesus were found, forget about all the qualifications, how would you know? And but let's just imagine a world where the body of Jesus is found in a tomb somewhere in modern day Turkey. And we are 100% confident. This is the flesh and bone body of Jesus of Nazareth. Would that change anything about your life? And do you know that a majority of Christians said, no, it wouldn't change anything. Now, I got to tell you, uh, call me unsanctified if you like, because it'd be true. But if they find the body of Jesus Christ, I am not standing here teaching these classes any more Sundays. I am staying home. I am hitting the golf links. I am changing just about everything about my life. We'll vote on the children one by one. I'm, I'm done, right? Because it matters that much. We're not really voting on the children. <laughs> what about that old hymn? I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy, I hear his voice of cheer, and just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives, salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. How does it end? He lives within my heart. Is that all it takes? Is that all y'all need to be convinced is, well, I, I, it doesn't matter if it's actually true. I know it's true in my heart. The facts don't matter. The history doesn't matter because it's in my heart. I hope not. <laughs> I, I hope that's not enough for you to devote your life to a cause, to devote your life really to a man, the person, Jesus Christ. I hope it takes a little bit more for you than just a feeling that could be indigestion or who knows what else. When someone asks us how we know Christianity is true, what do we say? When they're asking us, why should they believe this? What's our answer? Do we give a uh, personal testimony, a subjective experience of, I used to be this way and now I'm this way and that's why you should believe? Or do we give objective facts about what happened in history. Now, don't misunderstand me. You can then say, because of those objective facts in history, here's what my experience of that has been. But nobody should believe anything based on your experience. They should believe it because it's true. And those are the things that we're going to talk about in this text. What is the foundation of Christianity? It's not, he lives within my heart. It's real, objective facts, events that happened in history. And one particular event that uh, the apostles preach again and again and again. Matt, would you read some of these texts I gave you from Acts? Uh, Acts 1, verse 3. He 
presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So if you ask the apostles, you ask me how we know he lives, would they have said he lives within my heart? Or would they have said, no, no, actually he showed up after he was dead and he ate some fish with us and he talked for a while and he joined us in the upper room and he, events of history. Four ten. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Olivia, would you read Acts five thirty to thirty two? These apostles are kind of a, a one-trick pony, aren't they? I mean, you ask them to preach, and it's like they just have one thing to preach about. Of course, that thing is the resurrection. The fact that you people killed Jesus, and we saw him come back from the dead. Pretty big deal. Paul regards the resurrection as the final and conclusive proof that everything Jesus said about himself was true. That's one of the things that's so interesting about people today who want to pick and choose from the Bible what's true and what's not, and they like this part and they don't like that part. Look, Jesus claims to be God, crucified for our sins and raised from the dead. If that happened, nothing else in this book should be a stretch for us. Nothing else should be a problem to believe. And if that didn't happen, what do you care if he got a couple other nuggets of truth right? Why would you invest any time and energy in part of Christianity? You're either all in or you're all out. Those are the only things that make sense. So this is the climax of the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So let's hear that text from Matthew 27. Uh, Who's got verses 32 to 44? I do. John. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink, mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. The robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Let's talk for a moment about crucifixion as a method of execution. One of the things I'm sure we all know and recognize is how painful crucifixion is as a way to die. Right? That's pretty clear. This is not uh, a 
peaceful way to die. You die of suffocation because in your exhaustion, you can no longer lift your body up enough to breathe, to fill your lungs with air. And so it's as if you're drowning, even though you're not underwater. It's bad. Um, But crucifixion wasn't chosen as the method of execution because it was the most painful method of execution. In fact, it was not the most painful method of execution. It wasn't even the most painful method of execution in use by the Roman government at the time of Christ. If their goal was to inflict as much pain as possible, they had better ways to do it than crucifixion. And one of the challenges with things like with the movies about the crucifixion, I've got a lot of challenges with movies about the crucifixion. Let me focus for just a moment on one, which is they emphasize for the sake of the emotional impact, the physical anguish and suffering of crucifixion. And that's not wrong, but it's not the most emphasized aspect of crucifixion by scripture itself. Who's got Deuteronomy 21, 23? Nathan? That, we got it. Thank you. Uh, William, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is curse is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Kate, Exodus 29.14. I think it's the verse after that that says, if you carry the cross outside the camp, it is cursed as well. I may have given you the wrong number. Did I give anybody Hebrews 13? I don't think I did. It says the same thing. What's the Bible's emphasis on crucifixion? The curse. It's not the most painful way to be executed. It's the most humiliating way to be executed. Um, This idea that the Messiah. That's why, what did the sign that they put over Jesus say in the text? Right? It's a mockery. You say you're king. What did it say in the text John read? You who say that you can tear the temple down and rebuild it in three days. Now, how do you feel? Huh? Now, how important and powerful are you? Oh, king of the Jews, we'll put a sign above you. We'll put you here publicly for everyone to see. Not just a moment of your death, but you struggling and suffering many times for days. Many crucifixions took days and the humiliation was lengthened. So this was the so-called King of the Jews, the Jewish Messiah, who says he's one with God. He is rejected by his own people, rejected by the Jews and put on this cross, which is cursed by God. The Bible has said anyone who's hung on a tree is cursed by God. That's how they get here. Uh, And this is Jesus. This is the way that he's going to die. So let's go back to that other subject for just a minute, which is the Jews rejecting their Messiah. Uh, We talked last week a lot about how Jesus came first for the children of Israel. He came first as uh, part of the covenant that God had made where he had promised 
the people Israel that he would send them a Messiah and that that Messiah would come from among them, would everything on this page. (laughs) So the question is, How could they have seen this coming? They rejected Jesus. How could they have seen this coming? And I give you this because I don't want to... Olivia, I'm going to borrow yours for just a minute. give you this because I don't want you to have to look all of these up right now. But think about the text that John read. And then look through these passages. No broken bones. Garments divided. Casting lots for his clothing. Dividing the spoil. Being being crucified, being numbered with the transgressors. That is, he wasn't punished by himself, that there were the thieves that were hung next to him. The earth quaking, the heavens trembling, uh, this idea of the sun going down at noon and the earth being darkened. They giving him sour wine to drink when he's thirsty. Uh, All these things, and then Hebrews there at the bottom, helping interpret them for us. All of these things, things happening that were the fulfillment of prophecies, of messianic prophecies. So along Israel's history, God's people have been given lots and lots of prophecies, lots and lots of, I don't want to say clues as if it was a mystery they were supposed to figure out, but clues in terms of when it comes You will know that the Messiah is who he says he is when you validate it against all these prophecies, right? That's one of the things you're supposed to look for as false messiahs come. And then as the one true messiah comes is, is this man the fulfillment of the prophecies? And this is just, I don't know, eight or 10. There are dozens and dozens of them in the Old Testament scripture, very specific things that would be true about the Messiah. That Israel, if they had focused on what God had told them the Messiah would be, would have been able to receive the Messiah, humanly speaking. But, and this ties in very nicely with the text from Ecclesiastes this morning, Israel rejected their Messiah because they took a way more pragmatic rather than principled approach. The principled approach would be, this is what God said the Messiah is. And so we're going to measure the Messiah against what God said the Messiah would be. And that's how we'll know he is who he says he is. But instead, what they did was they measured the Messiah against whether or not he would give them what they wanted. That's why you have such a contrast between Palm Sunday and uh, Good Friday. Palm Sunday, yes, this Messiah is marching on Jerusalem. He's going to give us what what we want, right? And then arrested, (laughs) convicted, hung on a cross. You know what? This isn't what we want. (laughs) Next Messiah, please. Give Give us a new one. So they should have seen it coming. They should have known. They should have been able to receive him because... He is so clearly the fulfillment of what God promised, and yet they could not. They could not because they did not believe. They did not have faith. They would not because it's not what they wanted to believe. It's not what they wanted to happen. And it's really remarkable when we are doing any type of uh, evangelism or explaining the gospel to someone, talking to them about why we believe, we need to ground ourselves in these facts. 
We need to say, do you understand the reason that Jesus was deified in the public consciousness was not because after Jesus died, the disciples felt like fools and wanted to seize power over the church. The reason that Jesus was deified, even by people like us today, is that you go back and you look at what God promised for thousands of years and Jesus fulfilled all of it. He was exactly what God promised and he did exactly what God said he would do. And that's pretty unbelievable. That is pretty amazing. As you go back and you read 2,000 years of history covering 4,000 years of earth and all of those promises, and he did it. He was exactly what we were promised. Questions about the crucifixion. We'll talk about the burial and then the resurrection next. But questions about the crucifixion itself. Ignore all these Old Testament references, but that's yeah. the one I'm going to hang my hat on. I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know the answer. I, I, I know... Um, my suspicion is it's probably different things for different people. Is it's, it's probably more of a personal thing of which, which do you choose to find the most offensive. <laughs> uh, the, I mean, the curse on a tree is a big one. The, the Jewish people could not imagine that their Messiah would be cursed by God. I mean, that is a pretty straightforward statement you can make, is if God says, I'm going to send the Savior of my people, and then I'm going to curse the Savior of my people, that's pretty hard to reconcile in your mind. You need God to explain why that would be and how that could be. And that's one of the things that Jesus tries to explain in the course of his ministry, and the disciples don't get it until it happens. Jesus is not able to successfully explain to the disciples the nature of what's happening on the cross until, one could argue, until the Holy Spirit comes. <laughs> I mean, certainly not until the ascension or just before it. I mean, they, it's a hard thing to grasp. Um, what God was doing with Jesus on the cross is something we, we need to make sure that we understand and wrestle with because it is the centerpiece of how we are free from sin. It does seem kind of odd that they had the Old Testament all the time. Pam's like, I don't know why they couldn't get it. They had 800 pages of this stuff. <laughs> yeah. That was there religiously. Yeah, and they knew it. It's not just like they had it and ignored it. Yeah. They knew it. They had memorized more scripture than you or I will ever memorize. They didn't have a lot written. I mean, right. that's how they passed things yeah. down. And I, I picked these out on your page based on the Matthew text and just some sequential examples. But if you go online and Google uh, messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled or something like that, and then you know make sure you're linking to a good website like Ligonier or um, uh, Desiring God or somebody, you can see the full lists. It is unbelievable how long those lists are, how many specific prophecies Jesus fulfilled. All right, let's talk about the burial. Who's got 27, 57 to 66? When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a linen cloth 
clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. Next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, you remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people, He is risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Joseph of Arimathea asks Pilate for the body so that he can give it a proper burial. And we don't know if he does that because at this point he has faith that Jesus is the Messiah. It's possible. It would also be a remarkable change because uh, he was on the council that just convicted and crucified Jesus. And so that's, uh, you know, that's where his most recent vote was. But it's a very courageous thing to do. And it's the type of thing that you could certainly see happening on a person's journey to faith. It's the, the question of the Gospel of Mark that gets asked so much. Who is this man? Who, who is this man? Um, the Roman centurion, just by observing Jesus' behavior, says, truly, this man is the Son of God. I mean, there's something about encountering Jesus as he is that itself had a powerful impact on people. You think about the number of people that uh, when Jesus is teaching in the Gospels, it says they marveled as he taught as one with authority. They didn't believe him. They didn't like what he was saying. They marveled. Oh, this is something. There's something about this guy. So Joseph is willing to be courageous, to take this risk, in a sense, of being associated publicly with Jesus, a man who was just convicted and executed as a criminal against the state. Um, And he wants to give him a proper, honorable burial. So he prepares a tomb, and Jesus is buried in it, and a stone is placed in front of it. And there are some things we need to know about the customs of the day, because a lot of Uh, people who've watched a little too much history or discovery channel and want to argue with you about Christianity, uh, their information comes from ideas and criticisms of Christianity that have been disproven or dealt with in academic communities for decades. So you'll hear things like the swoon theory. Oh, well, Jesus wasn't dead. Jesus was just unconscious. And the centurions made a mistake and they took him down before he was dead and they put him in the tomb and then Jesus woke up from his minor coma and that's how the resurrection happened. And in order to believe that, you have to believe that the Roman centurions, the most highly trained, highly skilled army in the history of the world, pre-modern weapons, who executed people all the time, forgot what a dead person looks like. Right? You, you, you have to believe, you have to be willing to suspend logic with respect to everyone else in the scenario who wants Jesus dead and that they're suddenly going to be satisfied with, as they say in Princess Bride, mostly dead. 
right? They're not going to be satisfied with mostly dead. The crowd who cried, give us Barabbas, doesn't want mostly dead. The religious rulers don't want mostly dead. The Roman guards don't want mostly dead. They want dead, and they're not going to be satisfied with anything less than that. Another uh, ridiculous theory that is so ridiculous in our reading, it's even preempted. We, we know that it's coming because they say, you know what's going to happen is they're going to say the body got stolen. When he gets raised from the dead, they're going to say somebody came in and stole the body. So they do a couple of things uh, that were customs of the day. One is to put this heavy stone in front of the tomb. So that you've got to have some seriously beefy guys to get this stone out of the way. This is not uh, that a couple disciples could show up or that Mary and some of the women could show up and steal the body and pretend he was raised. You would have to have a conspiracy of some significant people to make this happen. But they do one other thing that was a custom of the day that is not mentioned uh, specifically in this text. But we, it would be very bizarre if it hadn't happened, which is they would place a wax seal over these tombs. They didn't want bodies. Is that mentioned in this text? Sealed. They say sealed. Yeah. So what you need to know by sealed is it's not just we put a rock in front of it, a giant rock. It's we actually seal it the way you would seal a letter in the good old days, back when people wrote letters. I know this is a stretch. Kids, have you ever seen a wax seal on an envelope before? Olivia, you've got one? So, Olivia, you don't just put the wax on the envelope in kind of a blob, do you? What do you do? You have a stamp? And when you take the stamp away, what do you see? An O, right? You see an initial. You see a picture. You see an emblem. In, in ancient Rome, it was an emblem. So Joseph of Arimathea, as this is his property, as he seals it, it would have his seal. So if the stone is going to be rolled away, the seal will be broken. And it will be very obvious that somebody is up to some shenanigans here. And so there's these arguments of these ancient peoples were so stupid they wouldn't have known a dead body from an unconscious body and they wouldn't have been able to secure a body in a tomb that somebody couldn't steal it's it's illogical and it's it's arrogant to say that they couldn't have handled this without our uh, modern brains telling them what to do uh, so he's he's buried in a prepared tomb stalled in front it's sealed uh, and then joseph does one more thing what else does he do What's standing outside the sealed tomb? Guards. Guards. So now we're saying that this conspiracy involves the paid guards. That the same guy, Joseph of Arimathea, who's on the council that condemns Jesus to death, not only wants to give him an honorable burial, but he wants to participate in the conspiracy to fool the world into thinking that Jesus was raised from the dead when he wasn't. It is absolute madness to try to argue logically that Jesus was not raised from the dead by arguing with the biblical text. Like, just say the whole thing is made up. Just, just throw all of it out. But to try and pick and choose some of these little details and say, well, the biblical account is mostly true, but you know that Jesus was only unconscious. Thing. You've lost your mind. Just stop. Stop trying. Just say, I don't want to believe any of it, because that's what's true. 
History says this happened. The evidence, the witnesses say this happened. If you don't want to believe it, that's fine. I know why you don't want to believe it, because none of us want to believe it until the Spirit of God changes our hearts and gives us faith. But that's what this is. This is an issue of faith. This is not an issue of logic or interpreting history. And so you never need to be on the defensive about the reasonableness of your faith. If you believe this, you have rational, logical, compelling reasons to do so, to believe it. It's not faith in spite of evidence. It's faith supported by evidence. It's faith supported by reason. And so as we talk with people about these things, instead of being defensive or embarrassed or insecure that we believe this crazy thing that this guy was buried in a tomb and raised from the dead 2,000 years ago, Let's have the courage to say, you know what? I wouldn't believe it either, except let's look at the evidence. Let's look at the history. Let's look at what happened. Questions about the burial of Jesus. Your response to this wound theory, one scholar said, not only all the other problems about them being able to kill him and stuff, it's that this broken, bloody Jesus shows up three days later and they're like, that's a great point. The disciples' response to the resurrection is not entirely consistent with, oh, you were okay. Right? It's, it's a little more dramatic than that. And we'll talk more about the evidence of the disciples and the apostles' life and ministry after the resurrection. Um, you really got to be a conspiracy theorist to believe that they did what they did for something they knew to be a lie. I mean, you really have to believe they all were insane. Just absolutely insane. Um, all right, let's talk. Oh, yes, Kate. Um, how, did they, um, how did they seal their tomb? How did they get the wax over there? Giant, uh, strong, beefy guards, a, a, usually a troop, five or six soldiers could roll the stone into place, and then they had people who were trained in how to do the wax around the seal. Nathan? Yeah, it's not, don't think about a little tiny stamp like our, our wax seal kit, but they would have someone draw with a, uh, with a nail or with a tool of some kind, and they could draw the emblem in the wax before it dried. All right, let's talk about the resurrection. Who's got Matthew 28, 1 through 15? Jake? After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers, 
and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. How many times in what Jake just read and in what will come next at the beginning of, at the end of this gospel and at the beginning of Acts, will it say something like, and they saw him? (laughs) It'll say it a ton of times. And he was seen and he appeared and he was seen by many. One of the critical historical facts of the resurrection is that Jesus was not raised from the dead in secret. He was not raised, taken out of the tomb, and then disappeared. Nobody knows what happens to him. He appeared to many. The women go to the tomb, an angel of the Lord appears and speaks to them and tells them what happens. And then Jesus appears in physical form to the women. Um, He will go on to be seen by all kinds of people, believers and unbelievers. And he will explain to his disciples before he leaves and goes to a place where we cannot see him. He explains why he is doing that and how that fits into God's redemptive plan. But he does not just disappear. The problem for the Roman government and the Jewish authorities is not that the body disappeared. That would be an easy problem to wash away with the lie that it talks about here in the text. They came and they stole the body. Granted, you still got to stretch to say they came and they stole the body, right? Uh, Because these Roman guards have to be paid off and they fear for their lives. That's why he says, if there's a problem with the governor, I will help you. Because they had one job. Don't let the body get stole. (laughs) And they failed. So they're in bad and they know they didn't fail. So now they're failures at risk of death for something they didn't even do wrong. You better believe you're going to have to pay them off if you want them to keep their mouths shut. So Jesus would go appear to uh, many to give proof of his resurrection. Remember Thomas. Thomas, who uh, one of the Lord's disciples says, I'll believe it when I see it. And what did Jesus say to Thomas? He said, you don't just have to see it. Here, touch feel physical body right the jesus you knew and that undoes thomas a little bit right this is a thing it would undo any of us um there's a great line in the reformation study bible in the study notes at the bottom where it talks about this plot of the chief priests at the end that's always stuck with me when they're paying off the guards and it says that rumor spread um, among the jews the study bible note says this incident shows that clear evidence has no effect on those committed to unbelief. What would have been the most logical thing for the Jewish authorities to say at that point? Some form of, oh crap, <laughs> we were wrong. We, 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 we messed up. Let's go to Jesus and say, sorry. I mean, obviously we killed him and he came back from the dead. So probably there's forgiveness here because he's not staying dead, right? Like, there's a way we can fix this. He is who he said he was. If it was just a question of evidence, that's what they would have done. But it's not. 
It's not just a question of evidence. And again, going back to scenarios where you're talking to people about your faith, don't get frustrated and don't get flustered. Remind yourself that it's not just about evidence, that your job is to winsomely and compassionately present the evidence, explain why this is logical and believable, but don't get flustered or frustrated or mad when they resist it or they don't believe it or they say things that are illogical. Just pray for them because what it takes for them to receive that evidence, which is so obviously true and logical in those whom the Spirit has moved, is the Spirit of God to come and regenerate their hearts. So present the evidence with winsomeness and with grace, and then pray that God would change their hearts and help them to receive it. Uh, It's a tough thing to ask them to understand what is difficult even for us to grasp, that it's not faith against evidence, but it's also we can't believe the evidence without the faith. And so one illuminates and informs the other, and that's what we pray for for them too. So you ask me how I know he lives. How do you know he lives? How do you know? I'm not letting you off the hook on this one. I'm staying here. Kate got it right. Sorry. Kate? Because scripture says it. It's, the word of God, God is clear. Right. Yeah. Plus, we believe a lot of history that only has one witness or has, you know, I mean. Oh, yeah, that's a great point, too. As you get into apologetics, the stuff that we're willing to believe is true on the basis of one or two witnesses in history compared with the, the account of the biblical witness. But so if that's true, if Pam and Kate's answer is true, we, we know he lives because the Bible tells us so. What's a better hymn? Then the hymn he lives. Jesus loves me, this I know. How do you know? For the Bible tells me so. It is a much more theologically accurate hymn. We know because the Bible tells us so. We won't believe the Bible until the Spirit of God regenerates us and gives us eyes, eyes to read it, ears to hear it, instead of what we do, which is, blah, I don't want to, blah, 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 not listening. Right? We'll talk about that in the sermon. That's what Solomon does. Solomon only wants what he wants. And if he can't get the outcome he wants, he doesn't care about anything else. That's, that's us doing this. If we will listen to what Scripture tells us, which we can only do by the Spirit of God, we will know that he lives. And then you can get into the amazing reliability of all the evidence. You can get into the crazy stuff you would have to believe to buy into these conspiracy theories. Uh, you'd have, you could uh, get into the consistency of the early church accounts. Pam's point about the four Gospels and the fact that these Gospels were written in a time where people who saw it were still alive. If this whole thing was a hoax, these people get run off as a ridiculous sect and laughed out of town. But what happened in the first century church? Did Christianity get smaller after the resurrection or bigger? It exploded. In AD 70, when the destruction of Jerusalem comes and it's called the diaspora, the people are scattered out. It explodes everywhere they go. 
Paul gets to go on all these missionary journeys because all of these different countries are coming to faith. All of these different places have heard what has happened. And he and the apostles come and they explain it to them and contextualize it to them. Um, And then the point I made before, which is the last point I'll make. If this is a conspiracy and none of this stuff really happened, uh, are y'all freezing? Yes. The thermostat right there is the one you want to turn up. Sorry. Y'all have it blowing right on you. Yeah, just pop that up. If this is a conspiracy, um, not only do you have to believe all that crazy stuff about what's happening in the moment of, but look at the apostles' lives afterwards. What were the apostles willing to do for what they and they alone knew was a lie and a conspiracy? It, it didn't end well for them, did it? All the things that we read about in the Olivet Discourse that you will face trials and courts and persecutions and death, that was them. They're the ones who face that stuff. It's one thing if 2,000 years later, removed from all these facts, we say we're going to believe it and we're going to suffer for these things. We don't know it's a lie. But if it was a lie, they absolutely knew it. And you're telling me not that one or two of them were willing to die for this but that none of them broke. None of them. They all carried this to their horrific deaths and grave without ever saying, you know what, we made it up. How do you get? Clearly, these were remarkable men in courage and conviction and faith, the like of which the world had never seen. That must be it. It must be about the quality of the disciples that the world has never known human beings as firm in their convictions as these disciples. No, no. Seems like you've read the Gospels, right? This, this was dumb and dumber. This was, these, these guys couldn't stay firm in anything for five minutes until one thing happened. They saw the risen Lord. And that changed everything. Changed everything. Questions about the resurrection. So what is it, a bodily resurrection or a spiritual resurrection? It's a bodily resurrection. The body came out of the tomb. The body was seen by many. The body was touched by his disciples. And the body. And so what will our resurrection be? In body, not just in spirit, in body. The dead in Christ shall be raised. Who's got 1 Corinthians 15? Does it say when this body is raised, it will be burnt up and we become angels with wings and harps on clouds? It says this body is raised up and the perishable, that body which perished, takes on the imperishable, 
which is the body that Christ had after his resurrection. We don't understand a lot about it. That's why Paul, it's a mystery. There are things we don't get, but it's physical. It was touched. It was present. It was real. Uh, And that is what we wait for. So that's why, and not any uh, modern wellness mumbo jumbo, we take care of our bodies because they are part of that which was made in the image of God. We don't believe that the body is the problem and the soul is good. We believe they're all made by God and that they're all honoring to God and that he is going to raise and redeem all of it, not just our spirits. It's also why historically Christians prefer burial to cremation. I'm not making an argument that cremation is sinful. I'm telling you why Christians historically prefer burial. Because the implication of cremation is that the body is transient. The body is not part of eternity. So let's let it get burnt up and your spirit is free. That's not what everyone who does cremation means by it. But it is the implication of cremation. Whereas burial, the implication of burial is I'm putting this body in the ground and scripture says, where's this body going to come back out of the ground? You will be raised from the ground. So that's a way that we think about this as well. Any questions about that? All right, we're done. I've got a couple more lessons from Matthew before we finish, but next week, please bring me your passages or verses from Matthew that I did not cover that you want me to talk about. Um, We'll take a few weeks at the end of this study and I'll go back and deal with some of the passages that I skipped, but that you have questions about or interest in.